it's Joy Foster. I'm the founder of Tech Pixies, and this is the Sparkle and Thrive podcast, episode 76, Marketing an Underwear Company with Sarah Jordan. Uh, hello, Sarah. I'm delighted you're here today. You know, we've uh, been in each other's worlds for quite some time now, um, and it's just so much fun to see where you are now uh, and, you know, reflect back on where we met. Um, but you, uh, you have a, a long, extensive history in uh, the charity sector. Uh, you worked for Oxfam for a very long time. You were, I think, their head of digital, but you can talk about that a little bit. Um, but let's talk about how you've transferred uh, from that into building your own underwear company. Uh, you cr you've crowdfunded and you've you've launched this company and you're full on with it. And you uh, won you've won several awards. And I was delighted to be there one of the nights that you won one of the big awards. So give us a, give us your story and uh, let us into your world. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Joy. Uh, and thank you for hosting me on the welcome this morning. Um, so yeah, my background is nothing to do with fashion, manufacturing, anything that I'm doing now, essentially. So as you said, I worked in the charity sector. Um, and the shift came really in 2016. So I wanted to do something a bit different. Um, and, and kind of make a difference, I suppose. And I went out to Uganda as part of a the Uganda Marathon program um, to run, but also to volunteer out there and support local communities for a few weeks. And we fundraised and were working with different projects, essentially, in the Masaka region. And one of the groups that I was working with was a, a group of female entrepreneurs who were starting different small businesses, um, one of which was making sanitary towels and nappies. And they were really struggling with the business and we didn't understand why because it was really good product it all made perfect sense until we discovered that a lot of the women locally didn't have any underwear to put the sanitary towels in so they didn't need them they couldn't use them and it was just it really struck me because it's something that we take for granted every day it's literally the first thing you put on in the morning you just don't think twice about it and yet if you don't have underwear the impact was is phenomenal and so, you know, obvious kind of health hygiene issues, but um, risk of violence, sort of threats, status in the society and actually access to education was the one thing that really got me because we know how that important that is, particularly for girls. But from sort of nine or 10, when they had started their periods, they were missing a week of school a year, not a year, a month. So sort of 12, 12 weeks a year. And it was just having such an impact from that age, the difference between the girls and the boys was just phenomenal. And it it carried on through their life, obviously, their ability to complete their education, to stay in employment, um, and just even being excluded from the communities. And so it, it basically stuck with me. I really wanted to do something about that because, as I said, something that's kind of so simple on one level. And it didn't leave my mind I came back from Uganda I actually broke my leg while I was out there running as well so it was kind of a life-changing trip in a number of ways but um I just it bugged me um ever since and so I came back started to kind of look at how you provide underwear how you make underwear um actually cotton underwear is much better for you from a sort of health perspective but conventional cotton itself is a very nasty crop it's one of the most polluting in the world hugely pesticide intensive water intensive 
the fashion industry more broadly is not very nice. And so I kind of joined those together and was like, well, in, we, we need to do something about the sort of supply chain side and the manufacturing side as well, um, if we're gonna do this. So we committed to sourcing sustainably using only organic cotton um, and supporting people through the supply chain because I didn't want to kind of empower on one end and um, exploit on the other, really. So it was very much about that, doing the, the business side and manufacturing well, um, and then partnering with a charity called Smalls for All, who donate underwear in the UK and throughout Africa to keep girls in education. So it kind of, that one trip made a huge difference in terms of what I was doing, and the underwear business sort of came from that, really. And actually, I met you right after you did that trip because you were on crutches and we were at the same, we were in an event together in Oxford. Yes. So I God, I spent the next year, over a year on crutches because I really badly broke my ankle. Um, stress fracture that I shouldn't have been running on that I then ran a marathon on, not realizing, and spent another 50, the 15 months basically when I came back with it in a boot and on crutches. So in some way, the last year of lockdown, I've had a year of practice a couple of years, a few years ago. So it's kind of not been the first time that I've been stuck inside and not able to do anything. So I've kind of dealt with that and I've, I've had a bit more practice, sadly. But it was an amazing trip. And I suppose breaking my leg at one level gave me that opportunity to do something because I couldn't do the work that I was doing. So I was working in a consultancy basis or freelance basically in sort of marketing, marketing, digital strategy, transformation and commuting to London. And I tried that a couple of times on crutches and that was no fun at all. So I just had to stop that, which gave me a bit of space to for the underwear thing to keep buzzing in my mind and try and try and tackle that one. So that's uh, a fortunate side of the the accident, I suppose. Well, I think this is really important for people to hear two things that are really important for people to hear. Number one is out of something that, you know, could have been devastating, you know, like not being able to work because you've got this broken leg and you can't commute. And this is pre-COVID when people were, could work from home now suddenly, which we couldn't before. Um, but you were able to turn that into a positive. Let's talk about your experience in digital because you've been in di the digital world, digital transformation for a very long time. I want to go all the way back to your to your work in charity um, because we have a lot of people in our program and I know that's a long time ago, but I think if we just give some context on this and help people, uh, we have a lot of people in our program who are working with charities or are helping charities to raise money, et cetera. And you made some major digital changes uh, to the, the website you were working on at the time that brought in a, a very large amount of money because of those digital changes and that was able to transform lives. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I was working, yeah, that was my role at Oxfam. Um, going back before that, actually, I've always been in the tech space. So from my original undergrad degree, I did geography and computing. I actually wanted to do weather forecasting at the time, but it was easier to get into the IT side. And I ended up doing website design when it was hard coding it on Notepad opening it in Internet Explorer and refreshing and looking at it and going, that's terrible and doing it all again. But it was it it wasn't the kind of tech piece itself. It was the, the impact of that that I really enjoyed. So kind of tech for good, I suppose, in terms of you could use this in a positive way to achieve change. And I started doing that with I did a master's program in Oxford, looking more about the kind of electronic media digital side 
So I got into it from the early 90s when it all started um, and applied it to start with looking at in the kind of education space. So I worked at OUP for many years in their educational publishing division, looking at how schools could use it um, in terms of improving access to education, teaching online and the whole, well, on CD-ROMs at the time, um, and just really how you could use technology to kind of improve things. And that's what stuck with me. So shifting from OUP, um, at the time trying to convince them that they could sell books online, which they didn't believe at all, despite Amazon starting to kind of be up there, they just weren't convinced. Um, and I shifted to Oxfam to try and take their digital stuff forwards, really. So yeah, I was their head of digital um, for five years. Didn't you introduce the online uh, donations for them as well? That so, yeah, we collected, I mean, basically digital, my remit covered kind of the marketing communications fundraising side of digital. So from a supporter perspective, from communications, how they um, explained what they were doing through the website, how the website was a major fundraising channel, um, particularly in emergencies, their email, their social, um, and their relationship with the online shop as well, which is obviously a big um, income channel for Oxfam. Um, and also the program side as well, which was a bit I found particularly interesting. So we had a program called Digital Vision, which was basically how you could use technology in the field, whether it was through data collection, mobile money services, all sorts. Again, just about improving the effectiveness of Oxfam's work on the ground um, by speeding things up, making it easier. The reality is in a lot of situations and countries where they were working, people did have mobile phones. They'd skipped the whole kind of um, desktop, laptop side, but we're on mobile phones and everything was was using that. And that made a big difference to the work that Oxfam was doing in terms of the number of people it could reach and the impact of that work. So it was a kind of mix. And it also gave us the ability to connect those two a little bit more. So as a supporter of any charity, you want to know where your money is going. Um, and the advantage of digital gives you the transparency. So we knew exactly where um, the money that we were spending was going, we could track that and the effectiveness of it. And it could also allow us to improve the communications. So we had direct access to people in the field, we could see where the money was actually going and the people that were benefiting from that and the programs that were developed as a result. And particularly in an emergency when speed of response is critical. So obviously from a saving lives on the ground perspective, but from a fundraising perspective, the first the first mover thing, first mover advantage is being there um, in the start at the start when something happened made a huge difference to the amount of money that was raised. And we had we were responsible for that as a team. So we were on 24-7 call effectively. If any if anything happened, we had to 30 minutes to get the website live, to switch it into emergency fundraising mode, to get emails out, to get everything on social, and to just make sure that we were the number one charity response because we had a limited period before it would kick into the DEC if it was a major emergency at which point everybody fundraised together which was great but it it had a slightly different role in terms of the different charities within that so speed was definitely really important and digital just allowed us to increase that visibility turn it around much more quickly well that's that's really great and i think you know obviously the conversation we're going to have for the rest of the car the time is around crowdfunding which is what you did for you underwear and also just 
how in the world did you figure out how to do the manufacturing and all that stuff without that kind of a background? Clearly, that's important. Um, but just f for people who are listening, who um, who are interested in marketing a charity um, and they are interested in figuring out how to leverage digital for their charity. Do you have any advice for 2021? Anything that you're, you're thinking that they need to know or they need to be doing with their charity? Um, I mean, I think the biggest challenge I found was always the the resource constraints, I suppose, the best way of putting it in a charity space because they don't have endless money. Um, so you're always working with less money and fewer people than you would in a the equivalent role, um, which makes it really hard. You've also got much greater accountability. So every single pound or penny we were spending was somebody's donation. So you really have to have that um, ability to focus on the numbers were really, really important for us. So making sure that um, every pound you're spending on doing anything in digital, particularly if it's kind of advertising spend and that sort of thing, you were returning several times that to have that benefit. So a real focus on the numbers and the metrics. The advantage of the charity sector is that it makes you much more creative because you don't have the money to spend. Some of my kind of colleagues, I suppose, people, you know, friends that were work doing similar job in commercial sector, where they literally had millions to spend, and we had a few pounds, we did so much more with that, because we had to think much more creatively, we didn't have the luxury of just being able to chuck money at it and sort of see what worked. Um, so it does make you much more creative, and it gives you a different sort of skill set. I think charities are notoriously behind, well, some of them, very behind the curve and particularly in terms of digital and it was something so I was in a lot of charity digital groups where all the heads of digital digital directors I went on from Oxfam to the MS society and it was a bit like therapy therapy when we all got together because it's it's a tough place to work it's high pressure you're making a difference to people but there's a huge uh, flip side of that in terms of it it is quite a challenging place to work at times and um just trying to persuade them that digital was going to catch on, this was going to stick around, it's not something, I mean, I was there uh, several years ago, so things have definitely changed. But I think just the ability to see the advantages of digital technology and marketing, that's ultimately where your customers are. Um, and I think it's something that we saw in the time that I was Oxfam, we had, I recruited somebody to lead um, our mobile strategy because that was just coming through as a major fundraising channel which obviously now is just the way that we work but at the time we we needed that role to kind of prioritize it within the organization and say actually mobile is huge for us we need to have that focus on it um whether it's text to donate and and just communicating and generally being where your supporters are is what's important so at one level it's kind of marketing 101 it's nothing different because you're still talking to people but you just have to be a bit cleverer about that and a bit more careful about it because you've got people's money that you're spending really yeah 100 percent. but i think the 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 point is that going going digital is so important and finding ways to uh, to leverage the digital tools that are out there, not only for yourself, but for your supporters is really important. Well, I appreciate that ability to talk about that, mostly because you've got the experience there. And I know we have a lot of women in our program uh, who are setting up their own charities or who are running charities for the people uh, on the digital side. The one follow-up I think I'd say is the kind of, I think seeing 
not seeing digital as anything different. So that was, again, um, the big change we made was trying to actually get rid of digital in Oxfam because it's about integrating it. So not seeing it as something different. It is just an enabler. And whether you're communicating through digital channels or any other channels, you do it in the same way. So it may speed things up and give you increase your reach. But actually, you still the principles are still the same and focusing on people and the storytelling and the communication side of it. People get so fixed on I want a website, I want an app. And it's like, why? What are you doing with this? And that I spent more of my time at Oxfam saying no to things than I did saying yes to it because it was so much energy around it and all the buzzwords of we wanted this, we wanted that. And it's like, why are we doing this? Because we have to be really careful, but it is about connecting with supporters, connecting with people. And is this going to do it? Or are we just going down a bit of a vanity route that everybody says we need an app, therefore? We need an Oxfam app. And there are a lot of conversations about that and a lot of buzz around kind of digital fundraising. And it's like, actually, digital is just the channel. We should just be doing this and integrating it. So not having a separate digital strategy, not seeing any of these tools as different because you focus then on that one thing and then it moves on and you can't keep up. And it's a continual sort of process. So it was more about how you work and the adaptability of it. And that's that's kind of what I went on to do in terms of the transformation. It's it's people and it's enabling change. Digital is just one of the sort of tools. Well, and what you touched on was storytelling. And that's a big part of the podcast uh, that we do here is Storytell. And that's why I wanted to bring you on was to tell your story. So um, we've got through uh, the part where you broke your leg and you were in Africa. You saw that um, girls were missing school because they didn't uh, have underwear that they could put sanitary um, napkins in, sanitary towels. Um, so you you then get this idea to start a uh, an underwear company and you needed to raise capital. So you decided you were going to crowdfund. Tell us about that journey. Um, what worked for you? What didn't work for you? What was amazing watching it on the outside was how it was just slow, slow, slow. And then boom, it took, you know, everything got filled. You've, you, you, you've crowdfunded yourself out. So tell us about that journey and what that was like. Yeah. So it was, it sounds uh, sort of when you join the dots in hindsight, it sounds like a simple process to see the problem, um, work out the manufacturing challenge and then decide that you're going to crowdfund. In reality, that was a couple of years. Um, because I didn't see myself, I didn't go out with an expectation of setting up a business. I've never had that view. It, it's just kind of evolved in that way, really. And it took a while to kind of go from the whole seeing the problem to connecting the dots and turning it into something and actually seeing a product, I suppose, as part of that. So it took about a year to come back from Uganda, um, still on crutches, and work out that actually having a product was probably going to be the way that we took this forwards, um, finding the connections in terms of the manufacturer, finding the charity partner, because that's been part of it from the beginning, so that we could have that kind of giving back an impact, and then turning it into a business. So I thought it was a good idea. Some of my friends and my family, they're always going to support you and say yes, but actually, is there a market for this? Is it a thing? Or is it just us trying to kind of solve a problem, which we could potentially do in a different way? So you do all the user testing, you do research groups, I've talked to so many people about underwear that I never thought I would do. Um, and 
so kind of you gradually go down that process of of it becoming a business and then it's like okay if we're going to make underwear having gone through the whole sort of sustainability side of it and wanting to source well how are we going to get the first range out there because underwear in hindsight is actually quite complicated you need a lot of sizes you need a lot of different items just to have a fairly small collection so it's actually we'd bitten off more than we realized i suppose um and crowdfunding we we thought about it so i did a an accelerator sort of pre-accelerator program in london over that summer 2017 um that really helped with kind of going through the business validation and and sort of thinking things through properly there was a lot of uh talk about crowdfunding partic particularly for product businesses and saying you know this would be really good for you i kept saying no because at the time I was actually doing some freelance work and I'd done training for the crowdfunding academy and I knew how hard it was and I'd done, I'd helped other people through it. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I know it's really difficult. Um, I don't want to be basically putting us through that pressure. We don't really know kind of where we are yet. So we kept putting it off. We kept saying no. Um, and we're thinking about other ways of sort of bootstrapping the business and to try and get everything going. And then we gradually realized with the, feedback from customers basically like we have got something here this could work um so we made a fairly last minute decision to go for it in the window just before christmas so we launched in the middle of november with a 30-day campaign taking us up a couple of weeks before december so that we could deliver the rewards just before christmas it is at, in hindsight i would 100 percent not recommend doing any of those things because it just put us under so much pressure. We didn't do, because we didn't think we were gonna do it, we didn't do the planning um, that is so fundamental as part of a crowdfunding campaign because you really need content. You need to do a, a video to get you know upfront to kind of tell the story. You need a lot of images, a lot of content for 30 days to maintain people's interest because that's basically what it is. It's a 30 day marketing campaign. Um, and you are just battering people with reminders to support you. Um, and also we had the cutoff. We then um, had the deadline of, I think it was about the 13th of December, which would have given us a week to get all the rewards that we'd promised by Christmas. Uh, what actually happened is that my co-founder, so I founded the business with a co-founder at the start. Um, she ended up going to India to sort the manufacturing. So we had problems with the manufacturing. So she went out there to do that. So I ran the campaign myself for the 30 days which is also not recommended. Um, and then we were successful just before Christmas, but the products hadn't arrived. So we had committed, we did a reward-based campaign. What some of our rewards were um, product to be delivered in time for Christmas. So as gifts basically. And I ended up hand delivering underwear on the 23rd, 24th of December around Oxford, around London to all these people dressed as father christmas because in the end i was like we have to just embrace this and go with it but it was a nightmare because our delivery had been delayed we'd committed to do it by christmas we could have probably have got in touch with everybody and said look i'm really really sorry they're all your friends largely but i didn't want to do that i didn't want to we'd committed to it and i didn't want to let anybody down so we hand delivered stuff and it was really really hard work so in hindsight doing it that close to christmas when you haven't actually got the products is probably not ideal um i think crowdfunding is often seen as a silver bullet and an easy way to get money and it's definitely not 
it really is one of the most I've worked hard and that was one of the, the hardest bits of hardest kind of projects I suppose I've ever done because you're just chasing people so we didn't do as much preparation as I think as I know that you should do in terms of having everything lined up um content wise so there's a lot of chasing because it's top of your radar but it's not on everybody else's and so many people say oh we'll support you we'll support you the 30 days goes past surprisingly quickly and they forget and they don't so you don't get everybody coming through that has kind of said that they will um and there's a very kind of uh constant i suppose curve in terms of how you need to raise money in that 30 days and there's a there's i think there's a website that actually predicts if you get um some i think it's about 60 percent in the first 48 hours then you'll do it and we hit that we were a couple of um a few hundred pounds off but we were basically right on track so we got the majority up front in the first two days so we did a big launch um in london because my co-founder was in london and we had a lot of friends and people supporting us there and then we did another one in oxford right at the front that started launched the campaigns we had products we did a kind of um story you know telling stories about uganda and the inspiration behind it and had a lot of the video content and all sorts to kind of generate interest we got the a big piece of the um 20 000 that we were aiming to raise in that first two days essentially two or three days then it drops off it goes really quiet for the rest of the time because most people just lose interest um and then you get that pick up at the end as well when people find the deadline and and are kind of um committing right at the end so we came it came through right at the last minute on the last day some of the people i mean we kind of we knew people were there in the background and just hadn't got around to it so there's a lot of final chasing saying you said you'll back us please will you back us now because the deadline is approaching um and we yeah we did it so we had the traditional curve like everybody else we kind of matched um what everybody says and we raised the twenty thousand on kickstarter so there's a number of things i think in terms of choosing the platform the content the rewards um it's that you really need to kind of have planned and know what you're doing to be successful in that we we were really lucky to get that we didn't we weren't looking to raise a huge amount of money because it was just to support that first production run really and get us going um, yeah I've, I've been involved in two crowdfunding campaigns and like you said they're some of the most like the hardest week you're ever going to do is working on a crowdfunding campaign oh, well hardest month and then and then some but the uh the first crowdfunding campaign i did was uh, well actually i can't remember which one was us and which one was Provis, but we I, I remember saying to the team i had a small team at the time this was uh back in 2017 and I said to the team, you know, uh, if we run out of cash, I'm going to do a crowdfunding campaign. And lo and behold, that was the backup plan. And like you put together really fast a crowdfunding campaign. This is literally like we started um, in 2015 and this was so 2017 and it was before I had raised money. And it was kind of like I could tell that we needed needed cash and so we we uh, set a goal of five thousand pounds and then we were hoping to have it matched there was this match funding thing going on so we we put it and you couldn't get the matching unless you put you know unless you put everything in and you went live and we were using crowdfunder and according to crowdfunder they had match funds available so we did everything we were supposed to do 
hit the go live button. And then we got this email from crowdfunder going, Oh, sorry, we don't have any money to match you. And we were just like, what? And at that point you can't change your, you can't change the goals. And so we were really, it was, it was really tough. And fortunately for us, um, the other thing that was really interesting that I learned on the charity side, cause at the time we weren't a charity, but we were a, a nonprofit at the time. And we were, you know, uh, social enterprise, you know, kind of exploring, you know, the kick charity side hadn't made a decision at that point what we were going to be. But one of the things that we said we would use the money for was scholarships, which is what we did use the money for. Um, but it was interesting because in the kind of the nonprofit sector, if you say my goal is 5000 and you meet that goal, there's no incentive for people to to pay above that goal. And we actually needed 10000 And um and it was it was we were very lucky at the very end uh, we got a corporate sponsorship of two thousand pounds that pushed us over to seven thousand, and that was huge because we were still three thousand short of what we needed and we had this background you know funding match fall through and I think that's the part it's the drama of it right you know you mm. get everything set up you launch it and then boom it goes you know it it goes one way or another we had many many of our students who'd completed our program they they donated into it to support future students, which was really special. Um, and I'm really thankful for that. But it was it was a very interesting experience. And then I did, um, and I think I can't, I must have been after this, we did um, a 100,000 pound Kickstarter with, um, with Proviz. And, uh, and I remember when they said to me, hey, Joy, our goal is 100,000. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, like I, I, <laughs> I've never done that. I don't know. Like, there's no way. And what we did was we paid for a consultant to just talk us through it and help us to understand like how um, how it all works. The interesting thing is the crowdfunding that we did for Tech Pixies ended up getting um, the attention of the prime minister. And then she came uh, and met with us in our offices at Grand Thornton where we were borrowing some space uh, and then name dropped us on television. So sometimes doing those activities can give you some press that you weren't expecting. And for us, it was a huge growth opportunity from TechPixie's perspective. With Proviz, you, you know, you want to get that cash fast and get the momentum. Okay. So we had we had sent out an email to everyone to say, okay, can you pre-commit? And I think only about 50% of the pre-committers actually did commit. You know, like you said, everybody says, oh, I'm going to pay. And then when it actually comes down to it, they, they don't. Not everyone does anyway. And so, but we, I think we had in the first... Um, in the first four minutes or something, we had the first 20 grand. And that was because we had done all the preceding for the Kickstarter. Um, and then it was a really long slog to get to the 100,000, which we needed, um, you know, to, to really close it out. And we made, you know, little tiny mistakes, like because the people who had pre-committed, um, it was a much larger number than we expected. We then increased the 50% off benefit to match the pre um, the pre-funders so that everyone who committed to pre-funding would buy. And of course, because the pre-funders didn't actually come through as 100%, we then had um, more stock available at 50% off than we would have liked to. Because part of what makes a crowdfunder work yeah. is that the benefits drop off. You can't get the cheaper options, you know? So anyway, it was, it was a learning curve as well. But I remember being in Colorado, having breakfast with my parents and, um, the, or with, you know, the clock was ticking. We were down to the final few minutes and I was like, my phone's underneath the table and I'm like <laughs> checking, are we going to hit it? And my mom got mad at me. She was like, 
joy. We're having a family pancake breakfast, you know, pay attention. And I was like, I've been working on this for six weeks, like, you know, and, and it did. And I, I think I bought the final like two jackets that pushed us like over the edge just to get us. I think at the end we were like 100,257 pounds. But the crazy thing about that experience as well is the customer service. I mean, the amount of people that were especially when you don't deliver on time and what happened in a similar situation, um, they just couldn't get the things delivered fast enough. And it was one of those situations where we had said, yeah, we'll get it. And this was in August. And we said we'd get it to them in time for Christmas. We thought we gave ourselves a big enough window to get it. To, and we still Christmas came and we had orders from all over the country. It was impossible. I wish we could have done the Santa Claus <laughs> delivery, but we had, we had orders all over the country, all over the world. And there was just no way we could do it. And we just, I mean, the amount of apologies we had to write and the frustration that people had. And then also I think um, the factory, uh, the, the warehouse sent out um, the wrong size and color to half the people. I mean, it was like a disaster. And, you know, and I remember aunt and Bob, they, they own Provis. They're like, joy, we're never doing that again. And I was like, mm -hmm. I never wanted to do it in the first place, but you know, it, it ended up being, um, it ended up being a really good learning experience for us. And we were able to leverage ads to drive traffic to the Kickstarter. And, and, you know, it worked really well at the, at the end of the day, but it was definitely an exercise. I don't think any of us wanted to repeat. That said, you know, it it does raise money. How how else have you funded your company? Uh, so bootstrapped ever since, basically, or um, and sales, direct sales. So the crowdfunding gave us that um, kick to get the first product range out there. Um, and but in reality, yeah, it costs you a lot of money as well. So you don't get the 20,000 that you raise because you've spent a lot of marketing. The platforms take a lot, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but that kind of got us going. And then that was in Christmas uh, 2017. Um, and then we went live in, in terms of our main website and actually selling direct to consumers in early 2018. So February that year. We then it's a bit of a complicated story. We kind of put things on hold while we resolved the issues behind the scenes in terms of ownership of the business. But it's very much since then just been direct sales through the website and putting that money straight back in um, to fund the next range. So the challenge with the product business is um, cash flow, basically. So we have to buy the underwear upfront and then we get the money back when we sell it and then we do the same thing again so it's constantly this cycle of like we've got a bit of money or we'll just spend it all on underwear and you have to raise that back up again until um until we place the next order so and it's continued from then we haven't had any other funding um i'm kind of adverse to doing that because i really want to maintain i think having gone through one ownership challenge um i now run the business and own it myself and i'm not about to give that up um so our crowdfunding was reward based as opposed to equity based um and i that's certainly something that i'm kind of sticking with at the moment it's so it's very much um bootstrapping me funding it with other work so i've been fortunate and i was able to keep um doing some of the kind of contracting consulting work that i was doing and use that to pay the business or pay me anyway um and keep the business going and we're now self-sufficient, I suppose. So I jumped in full time last year, 
literally about a week before we locked down. So the timing could not have been worse. Um, and recruited some of the first member of the team at about the same time. And we both committed to it just before everything dropped off a cliff. So 2020 was an interesting year for us, but it, it kind of got to the point where I was like, I need um, to commit to this for it to be successful because it sort of becomes, you're, you're limiting it yourself when we just can't. We had so many opportunities, so much amazing feedback from customers and I couldn't do any more than I was doing because I was kind of doing a full-time job and doing this on the side. Well, a number of other things on the side, including this. Um, and so kind of made that commitment, which was then reinforced, I suppose, by COVID last year. And again, having to be back at home just gave me that opportunity to have some more time to really focus on the business. And the first couple of months last year were brutal when our sales dropped significantly and everybody obviously had better things to think about than buying pants um but we plugged away at it so it's been very much a focus on marketing and communications and just connecting with our customers really so we haven't done anything paid um from a marketing perspective it's all organic so we're just driving traffic recommendations word of mouth focusing on connecting with people that care about the their purchases and the impact of those in terms of kind of being a bit more conscious around sustainable fashion, impact of clothing and fashion generally, um, and, and just trying to engage with them and get the reviews and recommendations and provide good customer service that keeps people coming back to us and recommending us so that we grow like that. And do you think that you will go into paid advertising? I mean, one of the one of the strengths is when you've got a really good organic, a really solid organic base, you can supercharge that with paid. Is that something you're considering? Yeah, I think definitely. I think it's just, I mean, I know how effective that can be if you get it right in terms of the targeting and the right channels. It's purely been a budget thing. So it's like we have a choice about where we spend the money. Do we buy product or do we buy advertising? And at the moment, we've needed to put the money into the product to grow the range. Um, we're trying to be a bit more inclusive in terms of sizing. So we go from six to 22. But that's a lot of underwear to have, again, to keep that relatively small range. So it's kind of how do you continue to develop that? This year, the plan is to give ourselves a marketing budget um, so that we can actually um, yeah, drive a bit more traffic and raise awareness. So we were really lucky. We do um, quite a lot on social. Um, Instagram is obviously big for us, Pinterest as a product business, um, but Twitter and Facebook also have quite a role in terms of just connecting with other consumers, other groups, people that are interested in sustainable fashion, as I said, and journalists. So we were lucky with some PR wins last year that made a big difference to our traffic and getting into the Guardian a couple of times had a huge impact. Um, and we've won a few awards based on kind of what we're doing and the performance. So I'm hoping to, yeah, kind of take that to the next level this year and really grow. Um, yeah. I want to bring, I want to put this picture up. Um, those of you who are watching live, hopefully you can see uh, this gorgeous picture of Sarah. Um, but one of the things that, you know, I, when you talk about bootstrapping, what that means is you are also the model. Didn't you like rent an Airbnb and then like do all the pictures yeah. yourself? And I mean, yeah. I love I love that story. Tell that story. Yes. <laughs> if you look closely, you don't need to look that closely. Most of the all the photos on our website are my friends and family. Basically, anybody that I can rope in to do it, 
will end up doing it. And anybody that shows any interest and kind of half-heartedly goes, yeah, sure, I'll help. It's like, right. Um, so bootstrapping is not just providing financial support for your business. It's doing it all, essentially. So the first, this was actually our first, like, when I say proper, proper photo shoot um, in 2017, I think. So I still technically had my broken leg then. So I was like kind of sitting around in my pants with some of my friends. Um, yeah, we hired, we found an Airbnb because that was the cheapest to try and get a studio is just prohibitively expensive. So we rented an Airbnb in um, the very far east end of London in some really dodgy area that was a beautiful space and had that for two days. And literally some of my friends from Oxford came down um, and we had a photographer and it was just us. We brought all our own props. We brought, we had, it was only our sample underwear. So we kind of had to keep switching it between us. Um, and it was in, when you look back on it, it's like, how the hell did we pull that off? But actually the photos are brilliant. And it kind of stuck with us in terms of one of our values is very much about showing real bodies um, and supporting body positivity because I think imagery of women, particularly on social media, we know the pressures um, and for men too. And we often see, you know, these ridiculous airbrushed, super skinny women that is just, it's not aspirational, it's ridiculous and particularly unhealthy. And so we've kind of embraced that approach and just said, well, actually we want real people. So it is my friends and my family. There's pictures, there's my dad who I made to model on his 80th birthday in pants. Um, my mum's done it in her late 70s. My, it's all my friends. So if you know me, you will see basically my friends and um, all of us kind of through the photos. And we've got some now. So the ones that you're showing are actually our customers. So last year, obviously, we had photo shoots planned again with just us in people's gardens and that kind of thing. But we had to cancel all of it because of lockdown. And so we were running out of images and we basically just put a call out to our customers and said, are you interested in doing photo shoots at home? If we send you some underwear, will you take some photos of yourself? And people amazingly responded. And we had about eight different people who were up for it, who we sent underwear to, including this one. Yeah, was in this was Alice in the Lake District not only a few weeks ago in the snow. Amazing photos that we'd never have got um just because people are willing to kind of support you and if you're really open about some of the issues that you're facing and the challenges and it's it's been brilliant because it's given us a huge amount of content that is really valuable so it's very much about i think the marketing from a fashion brand what i think one of the challenges we always face is the balance between being a fashion brand and being aspirational and showing the kind of fashion side almost but also our mission and purpose and we're talking about something that's more than just clothes and we're actually trying to encourage people to buy less to buy well to reuse recycle mend their clothing and that kind of thing so there's kind of messages behind it which is challenging when you're trying to bring that onto some of the platforms that are much more visual and it's like how do you still make it interesting and something that people want to follow and engage with without it being particularly worthy or just make people feel guilty about some of their purchase decisions. So it's it's a it's a fine balance, um, but social is definitely an important, important channels for us to just connect with um, our customers really. So they've, they've played an important role in the business.
Yeah, I think it's interesting that you're talking about Pinterest and Instagram. We've we just added a Pinterest module to our program in the last um, six months or so, and that's been really hugely popular, uh, especially with companies that are trying to launch something like a clothing brand or even interior design, um, furniture refurbishment, that kind of thing. Um, so it's great to know that you're using both Pinterest and Instagram. And we know uh, from our Pinterest specialist, Pip uh, Isles, that at the moment, uh, advertising for Pinterest is very good because it's not saturated yet in the same way that, let's say, uh, other networks are. Um, so it's just great to, to catch up on this. I want to um, touch on one other thing. Uh, it was also important to you, if I remember in the early days, um, to create a... Uh, a an underwear company that helped women with who were smaller uh, breasted, shall we say, um, to have something that they could wear that was beautiful and comfortable. Talk about that a little bit more because that was something I remember for you was important. Yeah, so it's kind of, I mean, it wasn't a particular focus, so we don't particularly focus on smaller sizes. It happens to be that our first, the first bralette that we designed kind of works better essentially for smaller cup sizes. Um, but it was very much about the kind of comfort of that and providing styles that are flattering as well as being comfortable. I think there's been a trend towards well, been a trend towards bralettes and sort of the less structured wired shapes that we are traditionally um, we've traditionally worn. Women historically don't wear the right bra. Um, in terms of the right size and the right fit, and they can cause actually real health issues as well as kind of discomfort. So we were very much about, let's try and do something that um, is comfortable, essentially, uh, and women like, but still provides that kind of feminine flattering style that's not um, not wired or not um, structured in the same way. So yeah, and it happens to work for smaller sizes. We're actually developing at the moment a new bralette that works for bigger uh, breast sizes because we want to be inclusive. So as I said, we kind of go up to size 22. We're looking at increasing that. But for bralettes, it's more complicated. You just need more structure and you need more support and you need to kind of develop the products. So um, we've done a lot of work with designers. So I'm learning a huge amount about bras so this is a new range that we've just developed for younger girls actually because wanting to um, we got feedback directly from our customers saying do you do these uh, my daughter would love something like this so we developed a, a range that we launched just before Christmas last year for younger girls aged sort of nine or ten up that it's based on our the successful adult design but it's design it's actually designed by girls locally so some of my friends got in touch and said and they'd actually drawn what they wanted in terms of the patterns um, and we worked with them for about a year to turn that into a product and again it's about providing a kind of age appropriate really so their feedback was very much it's either crop tops sports bra style vests or really inappropriate kind of push-up stuff for young girls and they weren't comfortable with it they wanted something that they found a bit more grown up, but also still fun. Um, and so we've got this patterned range. The clouds was my inspiration because I, as I said, I always wanted to be a weather forecaster. And I was like, I love clouds and cloud designs. So that was my my one input. Um, and we took their designs and their feedback and their patterns and developed this range for younger girls. So we've got four patterns and we've got six plain colors. Um, it's all designed to kind of work under school 
shirts, school uniforms. And it's also, we don't use size ages to distinguish the size because there's a huge amount of pressure on girls um, to that they should be a certain size when they are age whatever. Um, so we've named them after Ugandan towns. So you actually, it goes right back to kind of the origins behind the business and you choose that. We provide all the measurements so you can kind of work out what size you would be, but it's not that you are aged 11 and actually you're wearing a bra for somebody that's 14 or age nine. So there's no pressure either way. They're named um, Jinga, Kira, Lira and Masaka so that you uh, you can work it out kind of that way. So again, it's all about the body positivity and just trying to support women, um, which is what we've done with our adult range. And again, our commitment to using kind of real models and not airbrushing images and just su supporting girls um, as well as women in that. So, oh my gosh, I love that. And, you know, as a mother of a daughter who's just hitting that, you know, she's about to turn 11 and it's time. It's time. Uh, so, you know, that these things are amazing. And of course, I will be getting her a star one because, you know, Tech Pixies yes. is all about the stars. Yes. <laughs> uh, do you actually have star pants yet? Because that would be amazing. Not yet. I know. It's the, the problem is just like reining us, reining myself in because the moment you, <laughs> we actually launched these. So we did, I think you showed some of our sort of teaser campaign that we did on Instagram showing images that were sort of subtly related, but not the product. Um, and we got such amazing feedback from women going, these look great. And then we had to sort of say, really sorry, they're for girls. They're not adult sizes. And we just got such demand so we are looking at, at introducing them in our adult ranges and in underwear as well. So, well, you do have some uh, some really funky uh, designs yeah. here. So this is our Mara range, which basically, so we partnered last year with um, a top uh, African designer. So Kiko Romeo are based in Nairobi and are a mother and daughter team that are hugely well known in the African design space. And these are inspired by um, Maasai beadwork and they've turned them into fabric or turn them into prints, should I say, that we've put onto our underwear. So, and they are beautiful. They're absolutely, even if I say so myself, they are amazing. Um, again, it's all it's all on the organic cotton. So it's really soft and really nice to wear, but it's basically the yeah, Maasai beadwork inspired designs that we've got in our black and our red across the adult ranges. And we've got blue, green and yellow coming in the spring as well. So our core range is very neutral um, and sort of more everyday style and the, the black, white, gray and different skin tones and that sort of thing. But when I decided, when I was, people kept asking for brighter colors, but everybody's view is very different in terms of, do you like blue? Do you like red? Do you like anything else? And then um, I love African prints and it was just, so I was like, if we can get something that goes back to the heritage and inspiration of the brand um, and is really inspired by, inspired by that, then um, that would be perfect because it allows us to introduce some really vibrant, amazing prints. And it's a similar donation model. So it actually supports Maasai communities um, and the Ajuma Foundation in Kenya. So we still have the same giving back, but it's it's focused very much on the communities where the inspiration came from. 
so it's it's nice to be able to kind of have that impact as well so we're gradually increasing our range but pants younger kids pants with stars on or adult pants with stars on would is on the list and just all sorts of new colors and things coming through. So at Tech Pixies, we have a saying and we really adopted it from one of our Tech Pixie who has a podcast all about uh, brave pants. But, you know, just, you know, you got to get your brave pants on. Right. And and you got to take brave, bold moves in life. Um, and actually, I think that would be a great way to, to close here. What I love about you is that you are brave. Um, I, I've known you for a long time. I've known you since you broke your leg uh, all the way through to, you know, the pain of, of going through the partnership changes to, uh, you know, building the company that you've got now. Um, and, and I love how brave you are. You have been undeterred in your uh, desire to make the world a better place, uh, to leverage, uh, you know, uh, digital um, technology to make it happen, but also your ability to, uh, you know, see it through and to, despite the risks, despite the challenges, despite the setbacks, um, you know, move forwards. And it's so impressive to me what you've done. Uh, I definitely think we need to get you creating our brave pants and we can put them into our fab box, which is I just behind me. Do, uh, I would love to do brave pants. Yes. I mean, it's. <laughs> I want to do personalized. So we call them positive pants because it positive is positive pants. Change it is changing the world one pair of pants at a time is kind of how I because it is very much. I mean, I I don't necessarily resonate with the brave, but I don't. I think that's the whole that's the imposter thing coming through in terms of. And I in the same way, I didn't set out to start a business. It still takes a while for me to kind of go. I'm actually running. You know, this is a business. We're now doing this. We've just donated fourteen and a half thousand pairs of underwear. We've got four thousand girls in school because of us and it's like we're well, not because of us because of our customers but it's like it's it's real and I think it does every now and again you need to kind of stop and go oh my god this has actually happened um well not every once in a while <laughs> regularly you need to say that I think it's so important and but but here's the thing and I love how you said I don't feel brave and 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 I think the thing is you know, my one of my favorite quotes is courage comes from doing things you've never done before and realizing you didn't die. And then another favorite quote of mine is if you don't have the confidence, you know, have the courage. And I, I think what you have done is you've done that. You've been both courageous uh, in spite of not knowing what you were going to do. And, and also, like you said, the impact that's had on girls, you know, 4,000 girls in school, 14,000 girls with pants. You know, these things are so, so important for, and that's underwear for you in America who are listening to this. Um, but I think it's, it's so, so, uh, it's so incredible. And I, and I want, and, and I really hope you do more often than not sit back and go, wow. Uh, I know we certainly are doing that. Just, I am doing that right now, watching um, or listening to this, this podcast. And I hope other people are as well. What I would love is for you to give advice to the woman who is at the start of your journey and she's thinking, mm, I see a problem and I want to solve it, but she's too scared to take the first step. What, what would the piece of advice you would give her be? Just do it. I think it's really, so one of my favorite expressions is the kind of JFDI, which I won't explain, <laughs> but it's very much because I think, it's it's really easy it's much easier to give the advice and from an external perspective to versus when you're in it 
but I think my kind of guiding thing was very much I've been inspired by like females through my family particularly my grandmother who was very much like if you tell me I can't do something then I absolutely will so there's a bit of stubbornness and and supporting women kind of very much that runs through that and I think having the confidence to just give it a go because one of the things one of my early we've had some real challenges with this business and I it's only in the last year that I can kind of go it might actually be a business we might be able to do this and I think just what's you'll regret not doing it more than you will regret giving it a go and my thing was always worst case scenario I come back in a year and I've learned a lot and I've got underwear for life as have all my friends <laughs> if this doesn't work it's like it's if I don't try, I will forever wonder what could have happened. And whilst I didn't go in with a plan to do that, at every moment, it's like, well, what is the worst that can happen? The worst is that you'll fail, you'll come back, you'll be in the same situation, but not in the same situation, because you will have learned so much. And you'll have a whole load of experience. And I think certainly now I'm in a position where I'm running the business and I've I'm recruiting into my own business, but certainly when I ran big teams, it's very much you want people that will just go and do stuff, that will try stuff, that are prepared to learn and fail. And it's all the cliches, but it's kind of true because just give it a go. You are, I think most people are incredibly um, hardworking, talented. And if you just put your mind to it, what stops most of us is that uncertainty and the fear of fear of failure, but also fear of success. What's And one of my favorite quotes is the, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so true. If you just do it, I didn't set out to do it, but I've just taken that kind of, you do one thing, then you do the next thing, then you do the next thing. And you suddenly look back and go, oh, we're still doing it. We're still moving forwards and we're still making a difference. And it's, for me, it's the making a difference that inspires me because I'm not doing this myself I'm doing it for the 4,000 women that girls that I can keep in school because that really um, motivates me but for anybody else that's doing it, it's like just just do it because it may not be how you think it will be in terms of you end up you know pivoting doing a 360 something changes you'll you'll go in a journey like this because it is never straightforward but if you don't try it, then I think you will forever have that nagging little thing. And it doesn't need to be huge. It can be something you do on the side. There's no, um, that's no less valuable, but I think people's contributions are underestimated in terms of just, just go for it, do it, see, talk to people, ask for help, collaborate, work together, but do something that you love because you need, you need the passion and we need more passionate people who care about stuff who are trying to make a difference because 100%. So I just think it's so, so important to, yeah, recognize that, uh, that why you're doing something is always important. Uh, that one of my mentors says, ask yourself why seven times really get to the bottom of why you're doing things. Um, so I want to say thank you to you for your time. Thank you for your story. What a rich story uh, in so many uh, ways. Um, and what a blessing you've been to the ladies who've listened live today and those who will be listening on the replay, uh, men and women. We do have some male listeners as well. Um, but I want to just say thank you, Sarah. And uh, I can't wait till we can be in the same room together. And, you know, we can and maybe 
maybe one day we'll go for that run <laughs> if we yeah. ever can. Running running pants will be the next um the next yeah thing. brave pants yeah brave pants yeah a list of well and yeah. have you explored period pants as well because that kind of yeah. solves the problem of reducing the need for sanitary you know sanitary napkins that's something that I've found fascinating as we've been discovering that world recently. Yeah, so period pants, and so we've actually got somebody locally who's going to be making some reusable, reusable sanitary towels that we can use with our underwear to start with, because period pants are a little bit more technical, obviously. Um, so that's kind of a slower development process because we just use the natural fibers and the organic cotton. But it's something I think is really important, just in terms of our impact more broadly. So we. Obviously, we're trying to support kind of across everything, but um, just in terms of waste and sustainability and our impact on the planet is huge with everything that we consume and period products are no different. And if we can kind of minimize or make some small switches like that, then it does make a big difference. And again, particularly for kind of younger girls, I think it's there's so many more alternatives and options than there were when we were when I was growing up anyway and it's we just don't realize and the more we are increasing our kind of awareness of the issues of plastic and pollution and what this stuff is that you're putting into your bodies that's kind of died and has got all sorts of chemicals in it you know we need to be more organic and careful more generally um, with what we're doing eating consuming using etc so I think that's the problem. There's period pants, there's brave pants, there's positive pants. There's an endless list of like stuff I want to do. And maybe I will come back to the fundraising thing at some point and just go, help. <laughs> well, the good news is you don't have to give away all your equity. Uh, that was, and, and that's the beauty of having friends in the space. You know, I remember, and we will wrap up on this, but I remember when I was raising money, um, having heard the war wound stories from some of my friends who'd already raised money, I was able to raise money in a much better way because I was able to get the real stories behind what worked and what didn't work and yeah. you know was was able to hang on to more equity than than probably some of my friends had and I think those are important things you know those conversations are important to have and and women are women aren't raising money uh, as much as they should be and so you when you can find women to talk to about raising money and who've, who've done it uh, it's really beneficial because it helps you navigate that path and that journey someone who I highly recommend who's got a podcast um, uh, on this space um, and also does training on it uh, is uh, a gal named Julia and I think it's enter the arena uk. And she has created her name's Julia um, Elliott Brown. And I met her at an event and she does um, she does training and courses for women who want to fundraise for their businesses. But she uh, and and in and I did a podcast with her after I raised money, um, you know, just talking about my journey and what that was like. But I do think, you know, there's there it's it's a it's not something that women have traditionally done. And mm -hmm. so it's something that we uh, that I think, you know, as women create businesses that look like they are scalable because investment requires a scalable business. But if you are building a business and pants are scalable, I mean, quite frankly, there's seven billion people in the world and half of them are women and they all need pants. So you've got, you know, four and a half billion women in the world that you can or three and a half, I can't do math, three and a half billion women that you, you know, are potential customers. So when you have a scalable opportunity, that's where fundraising and investment really, really works. Um, and, and I think women 
should not shy away from it. But I understand fully when you've had a had to go through a partnership um, restructure that it can be hard bringing in more people to help run your business. You know, I mean, that's just, that was my slightly flippant at the moment. It's it's kind of um, I've also I wanted to grow it in a sustainable way more broadly. So that's kind of been the right approach. I think at some point that will be definitely a bridge, you know, and a question that we answer. And I'm definitely not I'm not adverse to the principle of it. And I think, as you say, it's it's about finding the right thing that's right for you. The I think the broader support network and talking to women and sharing this stuff is invaluable because it doesn't really matter whether it's about crowdfunding and you know equity and but just so many people have been through so many of these steps previously and people are incredibly helpful and supportive and just asking them and certainly i found in i'm in various kind of little informal and formal mentoring groups or women's groups that is just a few of us around locally some of my friends that run small businesses and we get a huge amount of support from each other just by sharing these things talking it through and saying you know this is what I'm struggling with who can help and people will reach out and I think you're right we need we need to raise the profile of what women are doing women need to fundraise and scale and and everything else that isn't necessarily the measure of success of every business so I'm doing a um, a, a program at Cambridge University Business School at the moment accelerating you know an accelerator essentially for social impact businesses and that's very much about how are you really embedding this and kind of showing it whether you go for investment or not is um it doesn't really matter it's more about uh, making sure that you kind of got that sustainability stuff at the heart of it and i think it is just kind of sharing those stories and supporting each other and having more visibility because we are women as women we traditionally don't do as much i I set up something for women in tech many years ago um, called Nine, which was nine is not enough because that was the number of women tech founders that there were, or the percentage of women tech, female tech founders that there were, and it's like, oh, for God's sake, and these numbers haven't hugely increased, yet small businesses and running businesses actually really works well for women because it can be more flexible, it can be, um, you know, if we're motivated by different things in terms of, uh, other interests and stuff, then it can be a hugely um, rewarding space to be working in. And they're a hugely important part of the economy. And and certainly in the last year, we've seen a huge growth in small businesses starting. So yeah, I think you're right. It's just kind of having those conversations and supporting each other to do it, I suppose. Well, 100%. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Um, and I appreciate the ability to talk to you about this and can't wait to see where you underwear goes. And I'm really excited about the new uh, African range. It's very beautiful. And uh, I love the inspiration behind it. And I'm sure that you've gained a few new customers off the back of this. And if you've only listened to this on the podcast, I would encourage you to uh, to, to go and look at the website and check out the beautiful designs that she's got. And uh, again, thank you so much. And we'll speak soon again, I'm sure. Uh, you've been a great addition to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Thank you again for inviting me. And um, it's been lovely to see you again. And if people want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, so you underwear UK is our handle across all the usual channels. Um, our website is youunderwear.com. Um, and everything is kind of linked from that. Uh, so yeah, we're on all the usual social spaces or directly through our website and you can get in touch with me through all of that as well. So 
and we do men's underwear i thought i should say that it's not just it's not just women so we're going for the full seven billion um in terms of <laughs> yeah that's just i'm sorry you're right yeah the full let's go for the full seven billion i love it who's your target it's like the world the world <laughs> well the world the your, your target is the the people who actually care about sustainable uh clothing and also yeah. uh, people who care about um girls getting education and uh also who care about girls having pants so uh and let's hope that that grows to seven billion how incredible that would be that would yeah we kind of need to make some of those bigger changes so hopefully we'll we'll be helping <laughs> all right talk to you later thanks again Thank you so much. <laughs>